Today on the Proceedings Podcast, we examine the Navy's strategic culture. This episode is brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield Vision Coverage. What makes good vision coverage? Things like fully covered vision care exams for all members, access to over 125,000 independent providers and national retailers. That's why you should choose Blue Cross Blue Shield Vision. Plans start as low as $12 a month. See what we can do for you at bcbsfepvision.com. Okay, today is Monday, November 21st, 2022. I'm Bill Hamlet, Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute. There are three days to go until Thanksgiving, and we give thanks for all the sailors, Marines, and Coast Guardsmen who will spend this holiday above, on, and under under the waves and otherwise deployed around the world from their loved ones. Thanks for standing the watch, shipmates. My guest today is Captain Navy Captain Scott Mobley, U.S. Navy retired. He is uh, the author of this month's American Sea Power Project article. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bill. I'm excited to be here. All right. So uh, let's start off here. Uh, I'll, I'll, I just want to start by telling the audience a little bit about your impressive background. If, to begin with, you're a nuclear-qualified surface warfare officer. You commanded the USS Boone, uh, a frigate. You commanded the USS Camden, AOE-2, and you served as reactor officer on USS Harry S. Truman, CVN-75. After retiring from the Navy, you earned a PhD in history, and you wrote a book that was published by the Naval Institute Press called Progressives in Navy Blue, Maritime Strategy, American Empire, and the Transformation of U.S. Naval Identity, 1873 to 1898. And you are currently teaching at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Of all those things that you've done in your life, what was the most challenging? Um, well, there, there was a number of different challenges, different points in, in life. I have to say the nuclear power training was, for me, a particular uh, moment. Was It was a particular challenge. It was very intensive. Uh, and I was just happy to get through it. Um, Later on, when I was in operational command, um, that's very challenging, as most of the audience will know, but it's also very rewarding. And I felt well prepared uh, when I got in the driver's seat there. And then finally, the PhD was an unexpectedly long slog. It took a lot of persistent effort and and basically to to push through on that project uh, took more than a decade or more than half a decade. To, to get that done. So in their own ways, there are each challenges, but in their own ways, there were each rewards as well. Are, are you of the age, are you old enough to have had a personal interview with Admiral Rickover to get into the nuke power program? Yes, I did. And we probably don't have time for that sea story today, okay. but All right. someday. Sometime, yeah. sometime in the future, I want to hear that story. Yeah. Okay. So uh, your preceding article is titled, How to Rebalance the Navy's Strategic Culture. And it starts by saying, to be the most effective, the U.S. Navy's culture must equally leverage three pillars, operational, technocentric, and strategy-centric influences. With these in balance, the Navy translates its assigned ends into the ways and means needed to produce and wield sea power effectively. So when historically has the Navy enjoyed a healthy balance of those three cultures? Well, first, I'd say that uh, putting the context, and you put some context into the three pillars that I talked about in the article, 
emerged at the end of the 19th, the very beginning of the 20th century. And they are what define the modern naval profession. And um, so during the 20th century, there were two runs of, uh, of two time periods where we see a, a balanced culture. The, the first one was during the interwar years, the 1920s and 1930s, which were a moment of particular creativity and, and innovation when it comes to this whole process of, of translating uh, ends to ways to means uh, for the Navy. It was very successful culminating in the Second World War victory. Also, we saw during the late Cold War period, the 70s and 80s, a limited revival of kind of that golden moment of the interwar years. Uh, and that, in that moment, we saw the, well, that moment produced the well-known maritime strategy of the, the mid-1980s. And Scott, what caused the Navy to get out of balance? How did, how did we get to where we are now? And what does that imbalance look like now, in, in your opinion? Well, today's, today's uh, in, well, what it looks like now is we, the article's titled, in the title, we talk about strategic culture. And today we have a culture where there's really no strategy, not, not appreciable. It's um, the, naval, the Navy's professional culture today is biased very strongly towards uh, technical and to a certain degree also towards operations. And how do we get there from here? Well, after the Second World War, uh, well, the wartime experience really brought to the forefront the efficacy of technical solutions uh, in war fighting. And it also introduced a, a cookbook approach to war fighting that replaced that, that creativity and innovation that we saw during the uh, the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, Trent Hone talks uh, very eloquently about uh, that transition in his book, Learning War. Um, other things that happened is that after World War II, there was a, a bit of a technological revolution in naval warfare, introduction of jet propulsion, uh, guided missile technology and, and nuclear technology, which really biased the organization towards the technology. And then finally, in the 1960s, DOD introduced business practices uh, into managing the, the, the defense enterprise. And that business approach also biases towards the technocentric um, culture. Um, so that's coming out of World War II. After the Cold War, we saw another moment. We had that revival I mentioned during the 70s and 80s. And then that basically disappeared after the Cold War ended, in part because there was no peer threat, and that opened the door for a technocratic resurgence. Um, the the post-World War II trends continued all through the period. They never went away. And um, also, the Navy allowed the, the DOD and joint imperatives to dilute its core culture. Uh, which further enhances technocratic bias, which focuses on programs and budget and, and things like that. Speak to that last one a little bit more, if you would. So how did, how did the Navy buck uh, the, the, the joint and the DOD culture uh, and, and further dilute its own culture? Well, one of the things that happened is that when McNamara introduced the PBBE, proce PPBE process in the 1960s, 
he reorganized the Department of Defense around those principles, uh, program, budget programming principles. The Navy mimicked that that organization so it could keep its it's uh, it could keep skin in the game when it come to came to uh, budget negotiations and budget battles. So the Navy began to look like an organization that was focused on how to get a share of the budget as opposed to what do we need to to uh, achieve our strategic mission and small s strategy. We're talking about strategy at large, not just nuclear. Um, the other thing that happened in the joint arena is, and I talked to this in the article, is that uh, with the mandates of jointness on officer careers, the Navy pretty much, it, it kind of pushed the Navy away. It was already inclined toward technology away from strategy, but I think that um, Goldwater Nichols helped to speed that transition where and kind of what happened, and other people have talked about this, how the best strategists went to uh, the joint staff. The Navy didn't have much left. And uh, unfortunately, the Navy had an opportunity here. Had they upped their game, increased naval warfighting PME, they, they had an opportunity here to get their message out. But the Navy didn't do that. So the response to the jointness was, well, we'll let the other services dominate in that arena. Yeah, the COCOMs and the joint staff uh, right. dominating in strategy. Your article, you're right, that you, uh, your article talks a lot about that, the shift in JPME focus. And I was reminded reading it and, and working with you on it uh, of an article from a couple of years ago by Graham Scarborough, now commander, uh, who wrote about uh, you know the need to put the N back in PME, the N for Navy. PME. Right. And he was saying that, you know, a lot of uh, Navy folks, when they get to be sort of lieutenant commander commanders, they go through JPME. They know more about the other services than they do about their own service. So a, a Navy aviator might not know as much about submarines or about surface ships as they do about, you know, Army uh, brigade, uh, you know, structure and that sort of thing. So uh, an interesting point. And your, your article brings that out. Um for our listeners who might not have thought a lot about those three cultures, operational, strategic, and technocentric or technocratic in the Navy, how would you describe them? Can you name some leaders who embody each of those? Sure. Um, we'll start with the operational culture because that's the oldest. And it's, it's a traditional culture um, of mariner warriors that, that when you think of naval officers, you think of them as mariner warriors. In the article I borrow from Dave Conan, he calls them salt horses. So I thought that was a great, great way to uh, kind of some imagery for, for describing this particular cultural bias. Um, the operational culture emphasizes practical application over theoretical study. Uh, it emphasizes competence uh, and experience at sea or in the field, up on the front lines, on the pointy end. Uh, the exemplars of this particular culture are uh, John Paul Jones, Decatur, Farragut, kind of these classic heroes that we all study as midshipmen uh, for naval leadership and, and just the epitome of what a naval officer should be. Next, we have the technocentric culture. And this, so, this is a, a cultural thread that emerged at the end of the 19th century during the progressive era. Uh, it emphasizes technical solutions or technological solutions it emphasizes STEM education, uh, bureaucratic practices, 
for developing platforms and programs and systems, focuses on the Navy as a business. And some of the exemplars of that cultural thread are William Leahy of World War II fame, Hyman Rickover, and um, Wayne Meyer as well, more recently. Finally, we have strategic. And when I talk about strategic, the strategic um, thread of naval culture, uh, I'm not talking about just strategy. I'm talking about war fighting in general. So it's the whole realm from tactics all the way to strategy, logistics. It, it's all involved with war fighting, war fighting knowledge and war fighting practice. Uh, this particular culture values the study of history and theory, war fighting theory. Uh, it values critical thinking, imagination, and adaptivity. And that's the those are the qualities it tries to inculcate in, in naval officers. Uh, some of the best exemplars for that particular uh, cultural thread come out of World War II. You think of Raymond Spruance and Ernest J. King, who many regard as the, the Navy's top strategist of that era. Now, one thing that I have to stress is that historically, uh, our, our top leaders, our best leaders, are able to embrace elements of all three strategic threads, all three pillars, operational, techno, technocentric, and strategic and strategy-centric. And, uh, and they've been very successful. And then we're talking about people like uh, Sims, Chester Nimitz, Arlie Burke, and Elmo Zumwa were, were pretty good examples of officers that could had their hands in all three of those pillars and were very successful. I titled, oh, there you go. Your book is titled Progressives in Navy Blue, published by the right. Naval Institute Press, 2018. As you said, it's a uh, it goes hand in hand with uh, with Trent Hone's book, Learning War. Both uh, I read about about the same time. Fantastic, fantastic uh, books. Um, and uh, you mentioned the interwar years as a high water mark for strategic thinking and process in the Navy. I'd like you to read a paragraph from your book. And then, um, uh, or I'm sorry, a paragraph from your article and then elaborate right. for us. Sure, I'm happy to do that. So here's the, the excerpt from the article. With the CNO at its center, the process integrated the general board, Naval War College, the technical bureaus, and fleet commands with OPNAV's war plans division. And I just digress for a moment. When I say process, I mean strategic process. And then the article go, or the, the excerpt goes on to describe the strategic progress, pro, the strategic process. Working together, these agencies endly, endlessly devised and revised strategic concepts, most notably war plan orange. In turn, the strategy guided research and development, acquisition decisions, professional education, wargaming, and fleet exercises in a continual feedback loop of experimentation and refinement. As Trent Hone has argued, this balanced process stimulated new doctrines for exercising sea power and an adaptive learning culture, blending all, uh, blending all elements of naval culture. The interwar organization produced the adaptive strategic leadership that proved critical to allied victory in World War II. So by way of amplification, what I was trying to say here is that uh, during the interwar years, we saw the Navy establish 
an effective strategic process. And by that, I mean a strategic, an effective process for translating ways or ends to ways to means or policy goals to strategy or strategic design to re research and development for structure, uh, doctrine development, things that we would consider to be the means of, of achieving sea power. In practice, during those years, this process linked the three cultural elements in concrete ways, um, which I pretty much just described, policy, strategy, and, and technology, um, and then operations. Um, and and it, in the end, this balancing act produced a culture, produced a generation of leaders that were insightful, adaptive, and adept in the practices of strategy, technology, and operations. And the the proof of the pudding was the Navy's performance during World War II. And we mentioned people like King and Spruance and Nimitz at the top, but the Navy was populated by many more officers of, of uh, that who were able to work in all three pillars of the balanced culture. It wasn't just the people at the top, it was throughout the, the ranks of the officer corps. Yeah, it, and it's interesting, um, you know, one of the key ingredients there that uh, seems to have a, a remarkably lessened impact on the Navy these days is the, the Naval War College, right? The Naval War College, um, in, in the paragraph you described there, uh, was linked into this intrinsically right. with wargaming and with the thinking and the strategic design and the feedback uh, so that the war plans division and the R&D decisions and the force structure, you know, decisions, um, those were those were wargamed at Newport. There was a there was a, a feedback loop. And I know um, Trent Hone's book, Learning War, gets to that a lot. And I, I've, I've used this example with with young folks. Who often ask me, well, what does it matter if uh, if I write something for proceedings? And I say, well, a great example is you know the interwar period where uh, th there was this um, feedback loop, a, a constant feedback loop, where something might uh, get war gamed at Newport, taken out to sea in a fleet problem, written about in a proceedings article. That proceedings article led to changes in the uh, the war gaming that happened at Newport or in what the you know the studies that were happening at Newport which might lead to a you know a, a different input to the next year's fleet problem which would then have an impact on you know the systems and the weapons that the navy was buying so it was this virtuous feedback loop that um, w was you know incredibly helpful at, at, from both your book and and Trent's book uh, in, in the Navy's, uh, you know, operational success in World War II. So uh, talk a little bit about, if you would, the, the, the Naval War College, because you're, you, you get to some, you know, high-level recommendations at the end of the article. But talk about the, the Naval War College's role from your, your perspective, you know, where it is now and kind of where it, where it needs to be. Well, I think that I, I once had a, a well-known um, military historian, army background, who, who I won't name right now, but he, he grabbed me one day at a, it was at a conference and he said, why is it the Navy has the, the world's preeminent uh, institution for war fighting, learning, teaching and, and learning war fighting, and the Navy doesn't take advantage of that. And, and um, I think that the Naval War College in many ways is kind of a sideshow it's it's some, some player, it, it's basically has an educational mission 
and I knew it does other things as well, but the the creative, the very fruitful and 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 uh, energetic creative process of the interwar years, that's not what the Naval War College is doing now. Um, it's it's just not, and and so we will we can get this a little bit later. You know, maybe we need to reinsert the War College back into that process, just like we need to look at other um, other strategy making bodies that that existed in the past working with the Naval War College, it created this this very um, dynamic, energetic uh, process, that, you know, synthesizing ideas, uh, symbiotic relationships and things like that, that, that was just extremely creative and, and found solutions to problems that the Navy was facing at the time. Yeah, so let's get a little bit to your recommendations. You offer three recommendations at the end of the article. Uh, to get the Navy back in balance, back in that strategic balance. Let's take them one at a time. Uh, so the first one is you recommend appointing an assistant secretary of the Navy for strategic concepts. Describe that in your mind, what that would look like and what that person would do. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll start out by by uh, some observations in my study of history and in the history of the Navy's organization and culture is that major shifts in that organization and that culture rarely happen historically, at least from the end of the 19th century, without civilian leadership intimately involved. The civilian leadership sets the priorities. Uh, it can provide clarity to overcome infighting within various factions inside the Navy. And, and there's several examples that of that happening. I won't go into them now, but it, I'm convinced that we need to get uh, that that top level civilian involvement. And that's why I'm pushing for a civilian assistant secretary of the Navy for strategic concepts. One of the things we've seen come out of uh, this article in the last few weeks, last week or so, is some discussion about how the Navy needs to appoint a senior, an admiral to be the, the Navy strategist. And that's all well and good. But if you want to shift the culture, it's got to come from the very top. And given the nature of civil military relations in the US, there needs to be some civilian that it, that's also uh, working with the uniform leadership in, in pushing that agenda. So what this person would do would be to work with the Navy's uniform leadership uh, to do some do things to basically to rebuild the Navy's strategic process from the top down. And that would entail things like overhauling and focusing the Navy's uh, career rewards and incentives uh, system to build a cadre of strategy minded leaders. It, um, it would also involve that process of devising and, revi devising and revising strategic concepts and plans and designs that could drive the, the decisions having to do with the, the, the means of, of naval power, of sea power, the force structure, the doctrine, uh, the training, R&D, et cetera, et cetera. And so this would be top level emphasis on that. In many ways, I see this particular office as the counterpart to a, the existing Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development, and Acquisition, who oversees functions and programs in those areas, this person, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Strategic Concepts, would oversee uh, programs and, and activities involving strategy, and it would be a way to help rebalance the culture. 
Got it. Now, that's an interesting uh, idea. So your second idea uh, gets back a little bit to uh, the Naval War College, to professional military education. You you mentioned strengthening the need, uh, strengthening naval professional military education, uh, and you have a specific recommendation for the War College as well. So uh, elaborate on that, if you would. Well, I, I think, again, the more senior people to get involved, uh, it sends a signal to the rest of the Navy that this is important. And so for the War College, I think it's important first, as you mentioned a couple of times, to revive naval the naval part of professional military education. And I also think it's important to bring the Navy, to put the Naval War College back into the process of strategy making within the Navy. And a way to facilitate that would be to uh, up the pay grade of the president of the War College, make it a three-star billet, and and send a and send people there, send three stars there, vice admirals that have some strategic acumen to help drive that process. Uh, the other thing, and specifically in your article, you say a a post-numbered fleet commander, right? So not right, not just a three-star, but somebody who's right. already served as a numbered fleet, and then goes to the Naval War College to be the president. And as we all know in the Navy. You know, numbered fleet is a is a major stepping stone. You don't get to four star without having a numbered fleet right. command. Exactly. So th that would put, bring in a leader with the experience, uh, as well as the credentials to to be part of that process in, in a meaningful way, but also to uh, exercise enough with someone with credibilities that people would listen to because of that. Because of that. Um, another thing that the Navy would need to think about is uh, ways to incentivize a PME uh, curriculum that has a primary goal of building warfighting, the warfighting mindsets, building strategic leadership, and, and that uh, a, a curriculum that's not just a check in the box for your jointness ticket. And uh, the Army, in particular, has already moved in that direction. It has some interesting things that it's doing that the Navy might um, take a look at. Yeah. So elaborate on what the Army is doing uh, there, if you would. What 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 kinds of specific things are they doing to emphasize war fighting? Well, one thing that they they've done for a while now is they tie PME to career progression and promotion. I remember I was working at a Joint Command many years ago and. Uh, I had a counterpart in the Air Force. He opened the mail. We were overseas. Uh, it was a military group in Argentina. He opened the mail and he found out he'd been selected for a war college. And he was really excited. And the Army guy congratulated him. And I'm sitting there going, what, what is going on here? The war college selection? It's, what is this about? You know, I, It just astonished me. They were so excited. And, and my Air Force friend turned to me and says, you don't understand. I won't be looked at for colonel unless I at least select for the war college. In resident, yeah, you got to go in yeah, person, right? So my my aunt, my response was, "You're kidding me. Um, you're kidding me." So uh, so the, the idea, Army and the Air Force tie uh, promotion to and career progress to PME. Uh, second part is more recently the Army's developed a, a very interesting program. It's called the ASP three program, which stands for Advanced Strategic Planning policy and, and policy, advanced strategic planning and policy program. And what it involves is sending command track O5s to various civilian institutions around the, the country to earn PhDs in either history or political science. 
And, uh, and then these, these officers go on to their command tours and then downstream they'll be involved in various uh, war planning or strategic planning and, and strategy related billets, uh, both within the army and in joint venues as well. And uh, the Navy has nothing like that. And I know about this program because I see a steady stream of these, these uh, officers coming through here at the University of Wisconsin. And I get to know them and these are, these are front runners. These are front runners and, and yeah. they remain career valuable and they go on to greatness after they get their PhDs. Uh, your, rec your third recommendation is for the Navy to build a cadre of maritime strategists. How many do you think we need and what would they do and where would you put them? Yeah, the, the question of how many, um, I think the Navy needs to figure that out. You know, it's based on the billets that are that need to be filled and then another, a wider agenda, which is to get a, a critical mass of strategic acumen into the officer corps. So I would say start with maybe 25 or 30% of the officer corps, maybe more. I don't think less. Uh, you want to achieve that critical mass. And, you know, what would they do? What would these people do? Well, one thing they would, they would infuse OPNAV and the fleet staffs with warfighting acumen. Uh, we have people like that now, but they're fewer, relatively few and far between. Um, and then when I mean warfighting acumen, I mean things beyond planning duties. They would be in other positions in these staffs, but they would be look, thinking strategically as much as they think operationally and technologically. The second thing they would do, and I think this is hugely important, is that these same strategic experts, Navy, naval strategic experts, would be assigned to uh, the joint staff, be assigned to COCOM staffs, and there they would represent and champion naval perspectives and naval priorities. Being experts in maritime strategy, they would bring those questions to the various conversations that take place in that staff and make sure that the naval priorities are, are front and center. I like it. Uh, Scott, we're running a little short on time here. Uh, my final question is for you. Is there anything we didn't touch on uh, in your article or, or other things that, that you'd like to mention? What kind of feedback are you getting on the article? Um, sure. Well, thanks, Bill. I think we touched on, on all the high points. Uh, and so I thank you for that. Uh, in terms of feedback, initial feedback is pretty positive. I'm seeing, I'm getting emails from people. I'm seeing posts in social media. A conversation is starting to uh, basically conjure up uh, about this article as part of the wider American Sea Power Project. And I have to hand it to you and the Naval Institute and the proceedings folks for, for facilitating that argument, because that's hugely important. Um, and I look forward to engaging with uh, the commentators uh, that, uh, that are responding to the article over the next few weeks. Yeah, amen to that. Well, thanks again for writing uh, and for your time today. We're, uh, we're out of time. My guest today has been Captain Scott Mobley, U.S. Navy retired. His article, How to Rebalance the Navy's Culture, is part of the ongoing American Sea Power Project. It appears in the November issue of Proceedings. Scott, thanks for your contribution to the project and your time today. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks for hosting me, Bill. All right. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast uh, brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield Vision Coverage. What makes good vision coverage? Things like fully covered exams for all members, 
access to over 125,000 independent providers and national retailers. That's why you should choose Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Vision. Plans start as low as $12 a month. See what we can do for you at bcbsfepvision.com. If you enjoy the show, like us and subscribe to our channel. Tell your friends, become a member of the Naval Institute at www.usni.org forward slash join. And until next episode, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. Have a great Thanksgiving, everybody.